Hi, Matthew. Hello. Um, I wanted to start and speak about your work more generally, mm -hmm. and then we'll get into A Man of the Crowd, okay. which is in the exhibition and also recently acquired by the Hirshhorn, which we're really happy about. Mm, me as well. Um, so in one of your previous works, you titled it Cultural Follower, and I believe that's a really apt description for you as an artist. Mm. And I wanted to start by asking you to discuss the role of history in your work and its relationship to notions of translation and reenactment specifically, mm -hmm. which I understand are two very big categories. Um, so what is the interplay between historical fact and interpretive fiction in your work? Hmm. Yeah, I think, I mean, I'm, I've been very interested since I was in college in the various debates around the nature of history and the, I would say the, <coughs> the shift maybe at a very broad level uh, away from history as a unifying category and toward a history as an application, uh, history as an adjective, history as uh, something which adds the dimension of time to another category. Um, for instance, if we just think about the, the history of um, discipline um, and then we get maybe more into looking at something which is um, purported to have a kind of innate quality or an essential um, important dimension, which if we look back uh, changes that we actually see that the the discipline system, let's say the prison system right now, mm -hmm. um, that even in the very recent time, if we if we add the dimension of time to the question of how do we operate or what is our prison system, then uh, we can see where we're at in a different way by looking at the last ten years, the last twenty years, and so on. So. Rather than saying that um, that there is this kind of uh, you know grand narrative that was so clearly uh, rejected, I would say you know by well in in in, a, in, a, in effect by uh, the World War post World War II period, probably earlier really in most uh, ways of thinking, <laughs> then. Um, History, I guess, in that sense, becomes a category for investigation, or it becomes a tool or a mode, as opposed to a thing in itself. And that's, mm -hmm. I think that's what I would say at the broadest level, that's what interests me about uh, doing this rather, uh, maybe, indirect move of bringing historiography, per se, the, the methodology of history into visual art. Right. because. The, the weaknesses and the strengths, I think, of the strategies, of the various strategies, become much more clear in a kind of um, test environment mm -hmm. that I see the art context functioning. Yeah, uh -huh. because, because there's, no, um, there's no given uh, expectation for that category within art, then it's a flexible way of, uh, 
assuming different voices and looking at some of the same questions from different points of view. And actually, the that, the piece that you started with there, um, the uh, interview with the cultural follower and public space inhabitant, that's the, the mm -hmm. full title of that project, is a very simple work that I think tries to create that problem for the viewer um, by using or claiming to use uh, journalism, uh, the interview, to uh, get the facts or, the, or find out the situation with this subject, which when you read the piece, uh, turns out to be the house sparrow. Um, so the cultural follower is the house sparrow in this right. case. And, um, and the idea there was to um, sort of animate that figure in relation to those questions of culture and public space and to think about the, the metaphor of this uh, this creature, one of many that has adapted and only survives because it follows human culture, um, and so fascinating. and to think about that in terms of biology and uh, uh, zoology, but also then as a metaphor culturally for ourselves right, to think about migrations. yeah to think about immigration migration. Um, even the fact that those most of these animals that have followed were also sort of invited, you know, uh -huh. at some point. Abroad. Yeah, exactly. So that kind of um, well, those your, paradigms. Your mention of, of the interview format actually leads nicely to my next question, which has to do with the way that you've deliberately in your work often used certain strategies or um, methodologies of the documentary. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, so the interview, the objective voice over mm -hmm. your footage, uh, you shoot in black and white quite often, yeah. Quite often, which it somehow invokes um, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. maybe an earlier way of um, making documentaries and also providing a lot of historical and social context for what's happening. Mm. And this is, of course, linked to the earlier question about um, wondering, you know, about your choices to use those, those strategies and the kind of inherent critique within it mm -hmm, mm -hmm. at the acknowledgement, as you've already mentioned, that um, when we really look at historical accounts of any kind, really, visual, written, mm -hmm. we are very much aware today about the subjective voice that's always there. And mm -hmm. um, so I, I just wanted you to speak about some of those formal strategies, but also I'm curious, when you choose a subject, um, is there a desire on your part to unearth kind of unknown histories or unknown perspectives within a particular history? Mm -hmm. Or is it more that um, the awareness that your translation of it, your interpretation of it, will always be inflected with your own um, interests as an artist, and somehow you're, just, you're also underscoring mm -hmm. that aspect of historical account? Right. That, those are two good questions to pair, I think, because actually what interests me is, is bringing those two things as close together as possible, in a sense, mm -hmm. to um, let my position, my subjectivity, or my, the position that I find myself in, or that, I'm, that I also partly make for myself, um, to, to acknowledge that 
to a degree where those questions of identification surface in the work for the viewer so that everyone sees themselves in a position with their the agency that they have or don't have and in relation to the the question that I've selected and a lot of times I really uh, decide in the end uh, on a working on a project or not based on what that project itself might have to say about historiography, about um, how we see ourselves in a certain way. So it, it is always, I guess at the same time that I'm uh, sort of working back and forth between research and production, I'm also working back and forth between what a project can reveal about those uh, conditions that underpin the subject itself, but also even the viewing conditions. The, the question of what will happen to this when it goes into a semi-public space like a museum or, or perhaps in di into directly into a public space in some cases. And, um, and I think the in, with regard to documentary, that's the other side of the first question, that documentary um, is a kind of trope in its sum, which, when it's brought into the art context, can fail in a really interesting way. Mm -hmm. in, because it, it, it always points us back to our original expectation. What kind of truth were we looking for? And what would make something true or not true for us? Um, as viewers or producers, and the and that's also why when I'm I guess if I'm lecturing or writing uh, and I'm talking about these questions, I sort of stick to uh, Eric Barnow's very simple distinction between fiction and nonfiction film production mm -hmm. um, because there unavoidably there are elements of both in both. You, we, we don't, we never see a purely fictional film unless somehow we were watching an animation that had a computer voice, maybe. You know what I mean? But, right. it, but even, even then there's something that is already being documented mm -hmm. because there's a recording or a copy of something. Mm -hmm. And so it, it may be much more minimal, but it's still there is some non-fiction there, just a trace of it. And on the other hand, of course, with, um, with documentary or non-fiction filmmaking, the storytelling decisions, the, the whole idea of selecting a plot from a story and, and making those editorial choices is unavoidably influenced by our, our ideas of storytelling. And, and, and then when you add that layer of, of looking at something which has already happened or is in the past, there's no recourse in a way other than some form of mental reconstruction, right. which never escapes fiction as well in a certain way. So I guess <clears throat> looking at that whole confluence of things and thinking about what happens when you bring nonfiction material into the art context you know, how can you look at it differently and what can you, um, what new things can you find there and also what can you say about those forms once you've 
seen it and you've returned to the more familiar form. Um, there was something else I wanted to say, but I'll probably think, think of it in, okay. in a minute. Well, let's move on to talking specifically about A Man of the Crowd, um, which is a film and has a very specific spatial installation, which we'll get into in a minute. Mm. But the piece is, is your restaging of Edgar Allan Poe's 1840 short story of mm -hmm. the same name. And in, in your version, uh, you've made a film version of a literary work, and you've moved the action of the piece, the narrative, from 19th century Paris to present-day Vienna. And I'm curious what attracted you um, to the story originally, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. and then this very interesting choice that you made to um, move the location and then mm -hmm, to mm -hmm. traverse time, so to speak, mm -hmm. which is something I think you often do, mm -hmm. where there's sort of a collapse between two periods, and I, I imagine that you know your interest in thinking, as you were just saying, of how do we work with material from a period earlier and try to make it, um, I guess, applicable and relevant to the present, but also it seems to acknowledge that element of translation Mm -hmm. kind of underscores it by doing something so blatant as to mm -hmm. switch the city and to make it in a completely different period. Right, yeah. So, first, what what did you like about A Man of the Crowd that made you want to make a film of it? When I read the story, I was struck by the how the story could be read, I felt, as a um, metaphor and paradigm for the question of nonfiction filmmaking itself. Um, I suppose if I was working more with journalism, I could have seen it that way as well. Mm -hmm. But um, the story of, of of one man who becomes curious about another out of no, without language, um, just through this other man's visual appearance, and not even so much his appearance, but his manner. Mm -hmm. And the the sort of increasing commitment to secretly following this person to find out something about that, about him, uh, to me was, was easy to think of in terms of an interesting division that existed uh, in the late 50s and early 60s in, within nonfiction filmmaking between uh, a kind of school which believed that if you could only succeed in hiding the camera and the means of investigation, that then you would witness and record the truth. The Ver people would sort of relax and yeah. act like they normally do. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And on the other hand, the opposite case, um, which was more uh, located in Europe, the, the idea that the camera, the presence of the camera, would actually provoke the truth, that by confronting people with the apparatus and everything, uh, that you would then put your, your subject in the position of having to uh, be self-critical or think about what's going on at that moment, and, and that this would actually be a stronger case for, for recording the truth. And, and th those two schools, if we call it that, um, would be uh, sort of a North American, uh, U.S.-Canadian idea. 
um, on the one hand and, and a more French-centric uh, cinema verite mm -hmm. idea on the other. Direct cinema versus cinema verite was a brief labeling uh, for this before they, of course, mixed together. And they probably never were as separate as, um, as the people arguing about it felt that they were at the time. And um, so the, the Poe story, the fact that the protagonist gets more and more committed until he follows this man for more than 24 hours, um, learning and, and learning absolutely nothing about him, uh, and then, con then even confronting him and getting nothing out of it. Uh, interested me as, as a kind of failed attempt at that kind of truth-seeking. Uh, first, this elaborate ruse of, of keeping yourself concealed. And in the post story, it's very ambiguous if the man who is being followed maybe does know or mm -hmm. sense that someone's exactly. following him. And um, so in terms of the structure of the story, the narrative, what I thought would be interesting would be to insert a kind of third character of the camera and let the, um, within my fiction, which is within, and Poe's fiction is within my fiction, I guess, at that point, to, um, to see what would happen with a situation where the follower is somehow aware of the camera and the, and it's ambiguous again if the, person who's being followed is aware of the follower or the camera, maybe one and not the other. And um, to kind of rewrite it that way without language, um, to, to use the, the Poe story as a kind of list of, of what, will, what happens and what the situations are. And then to think about uh, a contemporary urban space where there would be an interesting matchup between the, let's say, the, the action list, it's not even really a script, and the, the geography and the, the topography, what kind of place it is. And that's why I was interested in Vienna, because physically, uh, I mean, what's anecdotally interesting about the London setting of the Poe story is that Poe really didn't know London. Mm -hmm. um, he had been there as a child. And the details are borrowed from, the, the very few details actually, uh, that, that make the, the city even sound like London. Mo mostly it sounds like New York. It's mm -hmm. a very um, uh, super urban kind of uh, modern city sounding in mm -hmm. a way. But the details that uh, that, are, that do make it sound more like London are directly borrowed from Dickens. And it was a Dickens story that Poe had actually written a review of that from which these things come. And um, so the London in the story is very fictional in a way. And I liked that it was a kind of documentary story about a city that he'd never been to really or didn't know. And, um, and one of the important things that happens in the story geographically is that they cross and recross London and they go from the edges basically and today that would be almost impossible. Mm -hmm. um, it would have actually been difficult at the time. And Vienna physically, the city limits and also not just the 
invisible boundaries, but the, the real edges of the city when you get there, uh, make Vienna roughly the size that London was in 1840. So it actually could happen, this, the story, in that setting. And that got me thinking about Vienna and how it sort of wants to be, in a sense, a 19th century city. Yeah. And how uh, very different from most of the cities that were that badly damaged during World War II. Uh, it did not rebuild itself in a modern image. It, it, uh, it imposed or reimposed uh, laws about the heights of buildings and the style of buildings mm -hmm. and the, the original street plan. Um, you know, which is a debate that's emerged now in the last ten years in Berlin, what exactly. to do with the original street plan. And, um, and in Vienna it's so convincing that, you know, you don't, many people don't think about it. A lot of people go there and say, wow, I, you know, I, I always thought it was more badly damaged right, in so the war. And that it's a rebuilding. Yeah, yeah. So, so I, I tried to then think about the that kind of event list, let's say, which which I extracted from the post story, and I thought about the kind of correlation to the sites that that exist in Vienna, and to think about. Uh, you're right in the sense that this formed um, a kind of two ends of a pole, or two poles of a continuum. The 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 1840 story and the contemporary setting in a way. There was this um, sort of two points in that direction. And then intersecting with that line, I would say, was another timeline for the city itself and thinking about how those things could match up. Um, how, well, this this is another dimension of the, the whole project, is that this particular post story was influential on Baudelaire uh, in the way that he articulated the idea of the flaneur. And uh, Baudelaire translated Poe and this story among them and codified, began along with other writers and, and cultural uh, people in Paris and other cities began to codify this idea of the kind of aimless wanderer mm -hmm. and what that meant culturally. And much later, there's an interesting critique from Benjamin uh, about the, the flaneur, about the sort of, um, around the question of, you know, is the is the flaneur uh, leading something or following something? Mm -hmm. And that's so strong in the Poe story. Uh, after a while, the, the, um, it, it becomes ambiguous which person is the flaneur. You know, is okay. the flaneur the follower who will just see what other people see? Or is this oblivious kind of uh, cut-off person, the flaneur, who's leading other people behind him? Um, and. So, looking then at what the what kinds of sites were available or what was there in the city in Vienna, 
it interested me how that act of flaneurship would uh, also be a kind of time travel, in a sense, through um, uh, simply by having the characters walk through a certain street and make a certain corner, uh, make a turn at a certain corner, then there there would be a kind of a way of kind of redrawing the the timeline of the city, which would include all of these very conflicted histories of um, socialism, fascism, um, the, what was at the time a f f uh, fairly recent shift in the government um, mm. toward a kind of hyper-conservative and nearly neo-fascist mm -hmm. sympathy. And uh, so... Um, it's interesting that the the social commentary that you're describing is is reflected in the various sites, and mm. there's issues of class that seem to come up. Mm -hmm. um, obviously, questions of architecture and what kinds of architectural space uh, is depicted, and uh, issues of leisure. Yeah, you know what kinds of activities people partake in when yeah. you know they have their leisure time, and these are all, I think subjects that began to be so prevalent in the 19th century and then moved into the 20th. Mm -hmm. And this the subject of the flaneur is so fascinating. And I think, as you were describing earlier, the way that the work, in fact, has three characters mm -hmm. in some fundamental way. Right. The third one, as you described, being the camera and therefore also the viewer. Yeah. And, and obviously is also you mm. as the person behind the camera. Right. But we become that person behind the camera and we then become the flanner ourselves mm -hmm, and mm -hmm. uh, that that particular subject was so fundamental to thinking through this notion of the modern city yeah and I think that maybe is a good place to talk about how you've chosen to show mm -hmm. the film mm -hmm, mm -hmm. so maybe we can just describe that it's a 16 millimeter film that is shot through a wall that has an aperture and it's then projected onto um, a double-sided mirrored piece of glass. Right, it's semi-reflective. Semi-reflective, yeah, also one, transparent. Yeah, it has one coating. It has like a 50% mirror coating on one side. On one side. Yeah. So what happens is the projection goes through that glass, projects onto the furthest wall, but then also projects itself backwards. So the, so the image actually is doubled mm. and then almost doubled again because you can see it on the... A little bit on the glass. Yeah. yeah, yeah. And then of course the visitor, I think in the piece, is really encouraged to move around. Mm. There's no, we don't provide seating, so it's not like other video works where you really sit and watch it from maybe one perspective. Right. And as you move around, you see yourself kind of interfering with the piece, maybe casting mm -hmm. a shadow. Mm -hmm. You see your reflection in the glass panel. Mm -hmm. And and that kind of mimics this idea of the reflective surfaces of the city exactly. in the modern city. Yeah, exactly. So yeah. maybe just talk a little bit about those choices, oh, yeah. the installation and what they mean for you. Right. It did come out of this, it came from two places really, and then got attached to this story because of its than the kind of third metaphor. But the first two um, influences for working that, with it that way were, uh, again, some 
uh, notions from the 19th century around uh, windows and architecture and the sort of um, uh, the this thing which which was a very strong phenomena which is written about again in Marx and Benjamin and others about the um, and Dan Graham as well uh, the the idea of the consumer seeing their image superimposed over the goods which they desire, and this kind of idea of the shop window as partial mirror, partial uh, barrier, which mm -hmm. is you transparent. Have to traverse to get what you mm. want. Okay. Yeah, and then particularly effective when the store is closed, actually, you know, mm -hmm. heightening desire through the. Often lit up and right. very enticing. And, uh, and in the post story, the cafe window is, right. is functioning that way. And um, something I, since I'd already been to Vienna a couple of times, one of the things I had really noticed was the this way that that 19th century idea of the window, even in the modern buildings, but especially, of course, in the Reconstruction, was really strong. And there is this chain of of cafes which only exist in Vienna it's called the Aida mm -hmm. cafes, and each one is built at a different time and has a slightly different architecture, but all of them imply uh, or um, apply uh, a heavy use of mirrors and around the windows and stuff. And at the same time, I'd been thinking a lot about a phenomena that I'd noticed when I was um, projecting films I, when I was in grad school, I would always, uh, I was usually the one who was projecting the 16 millimeter work in classes, or if it was a student critique, I would project the student's work so that they could listen. And one of the things I noticed working in a projection booth, um, if it's set up correctly, uh, a really traditional one has a, uh, a piece of glass covering the aperture uh, of the in, into the auditorium from the from the projection booth into the auditorium and the reason it's at an angle is so that the reflection uh, doesn't it's keep bouncing back and forth yeah but will actually hit the floor mm -hmm. and um, so over the course of those three years that I was in grad school I would always notice how interesting that was that the film was on the floor mm -hmm. as well as in the auditorium. And so I started doing experiments in my studio with different kinds of glass and thinking about, you know, could you actually get to a point where you'd have a double screen mm -hmm. image from one projection. And uh, so I think it was having been in Vienna and that phenomena and reading the post story that I realized this how interesting that would be to literally double the doubling of mm -hmm. the story and to create that kind of challenge or dilemma for the spectator to have two images of a single narrative and to decide which one is the one I'm going it's to follow. One. <laughs> yeah, where is the story? Uh, and then, you know, quite delightfully, the, there is also the phenomena in the installation um, where the spectator creates, has two shadows on one side of the glass mm -hmm. and one shadow on the other side of the glass. Because 
when you're standing between the glass and the projector, you're, of course, casting an initial shadow, and then the light bouncing back is casting a second mm. shadow at a different size. And that's, I guess, linked to something that really interests me about working in the art context, this kind of um, things which we only, let's say, can experience by experiencing them. You know, um, Hard to describe. Yeah, and almost meaningless to describe in a way, but become a kind of spatial... Uh, I guess if we go back to the beginning of the conversation, it's a way of being reminded somehow that I am in a particular place at a particular time mm -hmm. and trying to figure out how this thing is working and where I'm at. And watching children in the installation, I found that's really operative because mm -hmm. the narrative is maybe not so strong or maybe disappears completely for a younger person. But um, they want to locate themselves but, in the space. But, yeah, but that... Uh -huh that phenomenon of what am I looking at, how is it made, where am I, and this kind of mystery, mini-mystery of the two shadows. Um, you know, I've seen kids play with it for as long as the, the film loop Interesting. <laughs> you know, goes through. It also through. seems to speak to the story mm. as well, because if your own shadow is being doubled, mm. to me that is a nice kind of metaphor for the two protagonists, because mm. There are moments in the film where I feel like I ask myself, is this the same person? Right. So right. at the same time that we were talking about how there's kind of three characters, one being the camera, there's also this way in which the two characters really collapse in on each other. Mm. And because there seems to be an age difference, uh, I at moments thought maybe this younger man is kind of projecting himself mm -hmm. into the future and kind of following yeah. himself. His obsession is kind of irrational obsession with this man for mm. no particular reason. Yeah. Almost as like a psychological desire to understand himself in the future. Oh, absolutely. And then because he disappears and comes back into the view and, yeah. you know, there are moments. Right. And as you say, the older man seems somewhat aware right. of being followed or moreover maybe aware of his doppelganger. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, so that's kind of nice that that also happens physically right. for the viewer. Yeah, yeah, very much. I mean, those all those are all the things that that point back to the psychology of the Poe story, right. which which is a very is yeah, intensely very, psychological yeah, piece. Exactly. I mean, some people have written about it as um, a, as a paradigm for the death drive. For, you know, mm -hmm. what is actually going on in that that Freudian. Um, configuration. And actually within Freud, that was something else I looked at quite a bit when I was working on the, mm. this, the, the project, this, um, the way that mirroring figures in the uncanny, in right. Freud's notion of the uncanny. And, and actually, in particular, a really amusing episode where uh, Freud demonstrates what he means by the uncanny by recounting a story of, of riding on a train uh, in a private compartment and reading and then sensing that someone was walking into his compartment from the adjoining compartment. Uh, looking up, seeing this kind of uh, disheveled old man walking in and getting up to, to tell him, no, no, you know, this is my <laughs> compartment. And then realizing that it was a, a door that had swung open with a mirror on it and that he was seeing himself. And oh, wow. 
Uh, and even just the fact that he thought, here's someone 20, 30 years older than me, when right. it's actually himself. <laughs> um, you know, what that says about his self, his imaginary self-image versus a mirror image right. and so on. That just really um, uh, became part of what I worked with, in a sense, this, that idea of the uncanny, right. a very concrete, um, episode in a certain way. And I, didn't Baudelaire also suggest that Poe's story might be a kind of self-portrait or, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. you know, biography of sorts? So there was I this think so, yeah. suggestion that that the character or the characters might be a kind of sort of stand-in for mm -hmm. the author. Mm -hmm. Let me ask one last question, mm -hmm. because I think we're kind of speaking to it already a bit, which is, it's, it's really interesting to me that you've taken a, a text um, a written mm -hmm. narrative, and you've translated it into a, a visual form. Mm -hmm. And within that visual form, there's almost no language used at all in the entire piece, mm -hmm. except for the opening line of Poe's story, which you do use, mm -hmm. um, which has the character describing a German book. Right. And in, in, in your interpretation, he's speaking into a cell phone, right. which is kind of a nice touch. <laughs> Um, and he says that it's a book that, quote, does not permit itself to be read. Yeah. And I just sort of love this idea, because translation is so important in your work, but the, the idea that, in fact, something can't be read and, and therefore perhaps couldn't be translated, and that things are elusive and ambiguous. Mm -hmm. And I just thought that might be um, just something to talk about in closing. How yeah. do you think about translation in relationship to something, and mm -hmm. whether there's this sense that, you know, nothing really can be fully understood or, or completely mm -hmm. translated, mm -hmm. certainly right. not accurately. Right, right. Yeah, I mean, you know, in terms of literature, that's something that really interests me because I, it comes v very strongly beginning uh, in the beginning of the 19th century, and maybe is, you know, becomes almost the sole expression of someone like Henry James, this sort of um, the, the frustration of language around meaning and, and, mm -hmm. and the kind of um, the unsolvable as, as a, a solution, in a sense. Mm -hmm. and, um, and I think the way that that has been used critically within history and historiography is is the connection. I mean, why do we even need to talk about things that happened in the past? What, um, what kind of use of memory is that? And, and how does that, in terms of social memory, how does that get expressed? And, um, and I think, I mean, there's there is this notion that comes, it's articulated a lot in um, Sarat Maharaj's writing about uh, the, the kind of inevitability of translation, that, mm -hmm. that in some sense we could always see ourselves as in a position of translation, even when we speak the same language, mm -hmm. that this is always happening. And maybe what's interesting is to look at the degree of translation and um, and to think of the multiple subject positions and how they are translating well or poorly to each other mm -hmm. and, and what are those politics of mm -hmm. those relations. And 
it's an interesting way of defamiliarizing all those modes of communication so that we can ask questions of um, of power or equality or rights or other things and even question the desire expectation within something like human rights uh, mm-hmm. around around that if we think of of these as acts of translation um, and that's yeah that that phrase in the in the Poe is is to me that is a kind of epigram for that tradition of of literature or fiction trying to demonstrate that we don't know something mm-hmm. and um, you know and that that whole idea of of um, starting with what we don't know as opposed to what we think we know is is really more interesting to me.